This morning is the whole of chapter 24 of Matthew. We had this in Bible study yesterday. So. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be, no, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. In those days had not been if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, There he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there, is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. 
Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the Master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time, and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is <clears throat> not aware of will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. God bless the reading of and hearing of this word. Morning! Wow, that scripture verse, our passage today? Whoa. Whoa. Deep, deep stuff. You know, and I was thinking about those things. In fact, um, at school we were talking about making predictions in the books that we're reading, stories. And um, somebody said, remember Y2K? <laughs> when everybody's computer was going to crash and we were all waiting till midnight to see what happened? Everybody thought, oh, maybe it's the second coming. Anybody think that? I did. I was hoping. <laughs> yeah, your 10th birthday. <laughs> was tough. He's a New Year's Eve baby. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at this passage, earthquakes, disease, famine, flood, we have had them all. We have had false prophets come up and say, I'm going to save the world, right? More times than not. And we like to make predictions, I think. We predict the weather. Yeah? We predict um, what you're going to have for dinner. I can usually predict that we're all going to say, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I need to get the recipe for that, that one, and I don't care. That recipe, too. If anybody has them, let me know, because those seem to be the most requested meals in my house. I don't know, or I don't care, or here's the other one, whatever. Anybody have that recipe? Let me know. So I wanted to talk a little bit about making predictions today, and I brought some scissors and some paper to do that. Can you predict what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut a paper snowflake. Well, it's a little early for snowflakes. 
not ready to snow yet. <laughs> Any other predictions what I'm going to do with scissors and paper? Cut out a pumpkin? Make a leaf? Well, actually, I'm just going to make one cut in this piece of paper. is I'm going to tear this piece of paper. How many pieces do you think it's going to end up as? Two. Anybody think anything different than two? Okay, so let's see. One, two, three. Oh, you guys are good. Two pieces. All right. That was easy. All right. Now I'm going to cut another piece of paper. What do you think I'm going to do with this one? day and thank you for the hope that we have that soon, whatever that means to you, <laughs> we will see you face to face and you will wipe away every tears, tear from our eyes. Lord, we trust in you and we want to hear from you this morning. Pray that you'll help me to be clear, help our minds and our ears and our hearts to be about Jesus and the disciples and everybody coming into Jerusalem and 
Um, I asked for a summary of the story, and Lorna said something like, Jesus gets on a donkey, and all the people throw their clothes on the ground, and he rides over their clothes, and he gets to the temple and makes everybody mad. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. So I wanted to bring it back because it was pretty accurate. Um, I think when she said he makes everybody mad, she was talking specifically about Jesus overturning the tables of the money changers. But that was just the beginning, actually, because for the rest of that week, Jesus keeps showing up at the temple and teaching, but his teachings get more and more and more offensive. So he doesn't actually stop making people mad for the rest of the week. It's almost like... He knows what's happening at the end of the week. He knows he's going to be killed. So he's just going to lay it all out on the table right now. This is how it is, you guys. It's kind of funny. Sometimes, maybe, maybe you've said this yourself, but we think the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are two different gods. And we think that the Old Testament God is the harsher one. But honestly, if you read some of the stuff that Jesus says in these chapters... It's pretty intense, and you might, they're, they're not two different gods. By the way, let's just put that out here. They're not, this, they're not different, but um, the, the way we see God in the Old Testament is actually not always harsher or scarier than the way Jesus comes across himself. Between Matthew 21, verse 17, which is where we left off last week, and beginning of chapter 24, which is what we're looking at today, um, this is a summary of some of the things Jesus brings up. First of all, he curses a fig tree, which is actually another symbol of Israel. And then he talks about faith that can move mountains. He tells some more people, some more parables describing people who say they're going to do the work of the father or do the work of the king, and then they don't. And other people who don't seem to be interested, but then they do do the work of the kingdom. Um, and he warns against hypocrisy. He tells some more parables about wedding banquets. He talks about giving to Caesar or empire what belongs to Caesar or empire and giving to God what belongs to God. He describes, he's asked what are the, what's the most important commandment, and he doesn't list any of the Ten Commandments. He says the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That means whatever you think you are. Um, and he says, he tacks on the second one. He says the second most important one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He speaks warnings of woe against the Pharisees and the teachers of the Torah. And basically what he's doing this whole time is we've been talking through the entire Gospel of Matthew about there is a difference between the people of the kingdom and the people of empire, the people of light and the people of darkness. And Jesus is taking his sharpie and he's just like making the line really, really, really distinct between the two. And he wraps up chapter 23 with a pretty famous cry of lament about it. It's not like he wants there to be this line of division. Jesus loves all people. He came for everybody. Let's be clear about this. But there is a line. And so he laments specifically about Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often 
Have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and yet you were not willing? Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is lamenting. He is crying. He's pouring his heart out. And then the disciples are like, how about this temple, though? (laughs) And Jesus is like, yeah, it's coming down. (laughs) This passage, Matthew chapter 24, and the ones that are like it in Mark and Luke are, it's one of the sets of passages that in the Bible with the most different interpretations in the Christian church and in Christian history. There are you, there are so many different theories about what all the different parts of these chapters mean. And I think part of the reason why there are so many different versions of what Jesus is saying here is because we approach passages like this with our own lens, our own cultural lens, our own um, family of origin lens, our like our church context, what kind of church we came out of, or maybe we didn't come from church originally. All of these things color how we read this, and we come with our own sets of expectations, just like the disciples are doing in this chapter. So they point out the temple to Jesus because the temple, as we know, is significant to the Jewish people. The temple is the place on earth where people come and meet with God. They understand, the Jews understand, understood that God is everywhere. But the temple is a specific, special location set apart for God's set apart people. It's kind of like a nexus between the heavens and the earth. And so they're pointing out the temple because they understand that there is something about it that's significant. Jesus rode in on his donkey, and everybody said Hosanna, and they still believe he's the Messiah, and so they're asking him, "What? look at the temple, and then he says it's coming down, and and so then it's almost like they're like, okay, well, maybe that has to happen first for you to come into your kingdom. They, when they mention the end, what's the sign of the end of the age and you coming into your kingdom, they are not thinking in terms of um, a second coming. That's not on their radar. They think Jesus has come into Jerusalem, something's going to happen to the temple, and that's going to signal the end of the empire age and the beginning of the kingdom age, and Jesus is going to be king in Jerusalem, and the temple is probably where all of this is going to go down. Those are their expectations. So, I want to ask you guys, what are your expectations about Jesus' return? It's going to happen. That's okay, left behind. Well, okay. 
Okay, so that's an interesting point. Um, David said, it's supposed to be worse than anything you've ever seen, so how can we even comprehend? And Jesus says something like that in this passage. But you're right. Things may not be how exactly how we think. They weren't how the disciples thought. Jesus is saying, but when we come with our own interpretations and our own expectations, it's sometimes hard to see um, what Jesus is and isn't saying. So let's look at this. There are a few things we need to remember about biblical prophecy. This is true for both prophecies in the Old Testament and prophecies in the New Testament. This one, you, this one thing you probably already are aware of. Most biblical prophecies have multiple fulfillments. So the ones in the Old Testament were for the Hebrew people of the time, and they tell them something about them and their situation. Most of those prophecies got fulfilled for them in a certain way in real time within a couple generations of when the prophecy was given. But then a lot of them also were even more fulfilled, um, more fully fulfilled, in, for example, Jesus. In the New Testament, they also tend to have a more immediate fulfillment for the people of the time and then a later one for those of us who have come afterwards. The Old Testament says the test of a prophet is if their words come true. So you can hear a prophet prophesy something and then it's like, okay, I will take that under advisement until you, until I see it play out. Sometimes in the Old Testament, prophecies didn't come true in the lifetime of the prophet, but I can only think of one exception where it didn't happen at least soon after. Um, and so something about what Jesus says here needs to have come true in the lifetime of the people he was talking about, especially because of what he says in verse 34. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. So, hold that thought. The second thing we need to remember about biblical prophecy is we always need to think about who were the original hearers of the prophecy. It really doesn't make sense for God to send a prophet to a group of people who are going to be totally unaffected by the fulfillment of the prophecy. Right? Why? Why? That's kind of silly. So in the Old Testament, usually the recipients of the prophecy were Hebrew people. That wasn't always the case, we know, from the story of Jonah. But um, usually it was the Hebrew people, the people of God, and those were all people who were born before Jesus was incarnated. And so even the prophecies that point to Jesus had another fulfillment before that. In the New Testament, the prophecies were usually given to people who were following Jesus. And so they were also often Jewish, but they might not have been immediately from the Middle East. Either way, they were Middle Eastern or Southern European or North African different culture from this one, for example. Different time period, different culture, different expectations, different um, different lens to hear these prophecies. The disciples are asking a question based on their expectations, and they're not, like I said before, they're not asking about a second coming because 
they don't even understand that Jesus has to die. How are they possibly going to think ahead to some other stuff that's going to happen and then he's going to come back? They don't understand he's going to die. They certainly aren't expecting him to be resurrected, ascend back to the Father, and then return a second time. That is not in their minds. They are not asking that question. And this answer that Jesus gives is for us, but it's for them too. So another thing we need to keep in mind is the original hearers of this prophecy were not American Christians. <laughs> they weren't. They are for us in the sense that we are followers of Jesus and we are part of the worldwide church. They are not about us as Americans. The stuff that Jesus describes here, as Barb pointed out very rightly, has been happening to Christians and Jews in other parts of the world for centuries. And so people who believe in the return of Christ from every generation since this one that Jesus is talking to have expected Jesus to return in their generation because something has happened in their generation every single time that matches up with, Jesus, with what Jesus is describing here. The disciples are asking for a sign that the world order is changing and that Jesus is taking charge now. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus kind of answers that question and kind of answers our questions. But, like Barb said, it's not really about the prediction, is it? We've noticed before that Matthew kind of does things in pairs, and I'm starting to think that maybe there, there's something about that that has to do with this split that he is constantly reminding us of between kingdom and empire. But there are two different inaugurations of Jesus' kingdom that Jesus is talking about here, and there are two comings. So when Jesus has been preaching, he's been saying the kingdom of heaven is near. When he dies and resurrects, the kingdom of heaven is here. That is him winning the overall war. He, is, he has won it already. Um, that is inauguration of his kingdom on earth and there is a sign in the heavens when he is crucified the sky turns pitch black in the middle of the day he resurrects and has defeated death and so in a way the kingdom of the heavens is here now already but it's not yet fully established and fulfilled and that will happen when Jesus comes the second time the forces of empire, even though they're already defeated, are not going to give up without a fight. And so there are two versions of this fight, and there are actually two different things that Jesus is describing in this passage. The first one happened in the lifetime of most of these disciples, except for the ones that got killed first. Um, and that was the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In verse 21, Jesus says that Jesus described a whole bunch of horrible things, and he says there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And I think that's what David was referring to. Um, 
so we might say, well, that's clearly not about Jerusalem because horrible things have continued to happen and not as many people died in that as have died in, for example, the Holocaust. Um, and you can, you can say that, but actually, if you look at the numbers proportionally for the, for the population of Jerusalem at the time, what happened versus the population of greater places where other genocides happened? Um, there were population-wise, percentage-wise, there were more deaths in this catastrophe that happened in Jerusalem. It was terrible. It was bad, and so horrible things continue to happen. That one was particularly notable, and Jesus is pointing out it's a big deal. But it's only the beginning of the birth pangs, the trouble and struggle of, that God's people will face until Jesus returns to finalize his takeover is ongoing. And that is the second thing that Jesus is describing in this passage. Empire has already lost, but like I said, it's not going to go down without a fight. And empire, this is basically what we experience as followers of Jesus, and we don't get it too bad yet. Um, there are Christians in other parts of the world, as we know, that experience this much more horrifically. But this is really empire's reaction to losing us. of empire are mad. They do not want human beings reconciled to God because we are supposed to reign with God. They don't want it. And so all of this is a reaction to either keep other people from entering kingdom or to, because they're angry, if possible, to draw us away. It's like in the passage, Jesus says, even if it were possible, even the believers, even the elect could be deceived. The forces of empire are angry. And this is why all of these things happen. And interestingly, the way that this chapter is set up, where the disciples are asking about the temple, Jesus is sort of almost continuing that motif through this chapter. The temple is the focus of the attack of empire against kingdom because the temple is the place where God and humanity meet. So the temple is the spot, is the beachhead where God will establish, will take his stand to take back the rest of the world. So no wonder it suffers attack. Dr. Blomberg in Denver says, false messiahs, wars, famines, and earthquakes all occurred in the 40 years between Christ's crucifixion and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, mentions all of them. The New Testament itself refers to both a famine and an earthquake. These are not the signs that the disciples asked about, however, for the end is still to come. He also says, persecution, martyrdom, apostasy, false prophets, and their deception, an overall increase of wickedness and a lessening of love will also characterize the years ahead. The New Testament letters reflect all of these. So all this stuff that Jesus predicts in the first half of this chapter, up to about verse 21, is actually 
all of that stuff happened. Between Jesus' ascension to heaven and the destruction of the temple. The temple was knocked down, has not been rebuilt. But there's another way in which the temple was attacked and thrown down before this. Jesus. Jesus, as we know from other passages and other gospels, has compared himself to the temple, has described himself as the temple, and he said, if you tear down this temple, meaning his body, I can rebuild it in three days. So, Jesus is the place where God and humanity meet, right? In his own person. He is God, and he is one of us. He represents God to us, and he represents us to God. We meet God in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is how we know what God is like. Jesus is about to be thrown down, but then he is going to be raised up again from the dead. And the temple is still under attack because... Now that Jesus is back in the heavens with the Father, the people of God are the temple. We are the place where God and humanity are supposed to meet. Until Jesus returns fully to reign, and then the whole earth will be the temple of God. Jesus seems like he repeats himself in this passage, and the things that happened before the physical temple was destroyed sound familiar because they still are happening even after AD 70. There's going to be trouble within the temple, the people of God. People turning away from the faith, people betraying each other, false prophets and deceivers, the love of many growing old, as Jesus says. And there's going to be trouble outside the temple, natural disasters and wars and persecution. When Peter expressed the truth about who Jesus is a number of chapters ago, when Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, the rest of the sentence was, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The temple will be under attack until Jesus comes back. gates of hell will not prevail against it. The forces of empire can demolish and plunder the temple like they did to the literal temple in 70 AD. They can crucify Jesus. They can persecute the church. But they cannot prevail, and we know this because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We don't need to be surprised when these things happen don't need to be scared. Our eternity is secured. We just need to be the temple. As our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world are the temple. Individual places where people can encounter God in the way that we work, in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, in the way that we love. So, how do we do that? Well, I think we're going to have an entire series on temple next year. (laughs) Um, So we won't go into that right now. But the short answer to how do we be the temple is found in verse 13, where 
Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then he, he does another thing with two. He tells a parable of two different types of servants. Real quick, what's the difference between the good servant and the wicked servant? servant does his job even when the boss isn't around. The wicked servant not only doesn't do his job, he says he will. He uh, actually beats up his fellow servants. Be like the good servant. This is how we be the temple. Take care of the property. Take care of each other. Keep watch and be faithful. Do what the master would do until he gets back, no matter how long it takes. And then, yes, listen to the voice of the shepherd, and then people will meet God. It's an honor that we don't even fully understand that you want to communicate yourself through us. Thank you that you are the one who empowers that to happen because we could not do that ourselves. <laughs> but Lord, I pray that you will give us a greater sense of hope and anticipation, not fear of the things that are happening or that will continue to happen, but hope in what you are going to do through your church, through your temple on earth. Help us to cooperate with